0: Hello and welcome to the Research Podcast from Georgia State University, available wherever podcasts are found. In each episode, we highlight interesting and innovative research happening at Georgia State. We feature a different faculty member and a different topic each month, so you can learn more about research taking place across the university. I'm Jennifer Rainey Marquez, your host and Associate Director of Research Communications at Georgia State. My guest in this episode is Jennifer McCoy, professor of political science whose research examines the causes and consequences of polarization and solutions to polarized societies around the world, including the United States. Today Dr. McCoy has joined us to discuss the effects of political polarization on American society and democracy and what it might take to set us on a different course. Thank you so much for chatting with us today, Dr. McCoy. Thanks. I'm so happy to be here. So let's begin with a little history lesson about how we got here. Um, Political differences and disagreements between party members are nothing new. So how have these differences hardened into the more extreme polarization that we see today?
1: Yeah, it's been a process over several decades. In fact, if you think back to the 1960s, people often say, well, we were very polarized then, thinking about the Vietnam War and civil rights and the uh, the controversies uh, over those themes. And it's true, while the nation was was split in different opinions about those, it didn't happen along party lines, political party lines. At that time, Uh, The political parties were actually much more heterogeneous. Each one had multiple viewpoints within it and different kinds of people. So, for example, the Democratic Party had very conservative Southern Democrats and more liberal Northern Democrats all within the same party. Today, the parties are much more homogeneous within each one. And what's happened is people and voters have sorted into the political parties so that now we can see their identities, different kinds of social identities that they have, and attitudes about different issues lining up under a single partisan identity. So, for example, in the Republican Party, it's lining up much more with religious conservatives who used to be split more between the Democrats and Republicans. And other kinds of social and moral values and issues have also split along party lines, whether it's your views on abortion or gay rights or immigrant rights or racial justice. The parties have also split along racial lines. So the Republican Party is much more white, the Democratic Party is not non-white, certainly there are whites in it, but the majority of the minority populations within the US now tend to move towards or vote for the Democratic Party. And so what's happened is we sorted into these two political parties where our partisan identity actually extends into our social relationships and even where we live. So the more dense urban centers, city centers tend to be more democratic, the rural and some of the exurban, even suburban areas tend to be more Republican. These are lining up by party. Even who we associate with, who we go to church with, who we are in country clubs with, um, tends to line up by political party. And the consequence of that is that we don't interact as much with people in other political parties. And when we're not interacting either socially or in work or on political campaigns together then we're not communicating and that means that whenever we feel anxious or threatened in some way it's easier to become suspicious and distrustful of the other side and that's the kind of extreme us versus them polarization that i'm concerned about today
0: so what effect does this uh, sorting and lack of communication and polarization have on democracy?
1: Well, what we found in looking at this in democracies around the world is that people start to see those in the other party as an existential threat to their way of life or to the nation. And if, if it gets this deep, if they're seeing the other side, the other political camp, as an existential threat, then they're going to go all out to stop that other group from either coming to power, or if they're in power, they will want to remove them from power. And in order to do that, then we, voters and political leaders, become more willing to violate our democratic principles and norms because we view the other side as so threatening that will take any measure, even if it's somewhat unconstitutional or undemocratic, to keep them from power or get them out of power. And so what we've seen in our study of countries around the world is this can lead to democratic backsliding and erosion and a move towards more autocratic kinds of societies.
0: And as political parties grow more homogenous, as you pointed out, what does that do to the party itself. Are parties, for instance, less likely to tolerate dissent among their members?
1: Yeah, but what happens is that the more you have distrust and dislike of the other side, the other political camp, then the more likely That anyone who within your own party tries to bring up a criticism or a dissent or even build bridges with the other side or to argue, well, we need to negotiate, we need to compromise. Those people trying to build the bridges or raise a criticism will be drowned out by the more radical voices. And what we've seen is that the extremes on both sides then drown out those who are more moderate, more centrist more willing to compromise. And they do that by insulting those people. They call them traitors or sellouts. And they use that kind of rhetoric or discourse to keep the divides going. And that can um, weaken and discredit any attempts to overcome the polarization and work towards compromise or negotiation to solve the national problems. And, you know, another thing that happens, it depends on the kind of institutions that you have, the kind of electoral system you have. So in the United States, for example, we have primary elections to choose our candidates. But the very system of primary elections can reinforce the centrifugal pressure of people moving further apart instead of coming together. When we think about a two-party system, we think about both of those parties trying to attract voters in the center those so-called swing voters. But with extreme polarization, the opposite can happen. And in the primaries to choose the candidates, it's usually the people who are the strongest partisans, the ones who are most attached to their political party, the most activist people who will come out to vote to choose those candidates. They are often the ones that are on the more extreme ends of the spectrum, and that means we're electing people who are going to represent those more extreme ends, and that makes compromise even more difficult. So it it can this kind of, of, of tension inside the parties and between the parties then um, hurts democracy, what I said before, but even before that it can hurt governance because we can't solve our political problems and our societal problems, because the two parties are simply unwilling to compromise. They fear being punished by their voters or their party leadership, or what we say in the United States, candidates or or people who are in Congress or in state legislatures fear being primaried, that is, opposed by somebody who's even more extreme within their own party to be the next candidate.
0: Right, and like you said, we've seen that certainly in this country in recent years. Um, You spoke a little bit earlier about how rhetoric works to increase extreme partisanship, and yet often the response is, you know, oh, it's just talk. Um, But how important is rhetoric when it comes
1: to exacerbating this issue? I think it's actually very important. Sure, behavior, actual policy change is what's going to affect people's day-to-day life. But so does the talk. So does the rhetoric. Um, what it does is it can change what's viewed as normal among, you know all of us common people. And when we uh, what we've seen in our in our research is that political leaders or candidates for leadership can be extremely good at reading a public mood and they'll come out with political messages, campaign messages, that intentionally drive wedges between people. They can do this by highlighting issues that may be latent in the society, meaning the issues are there, maybe people are worried about it, there are some grievances, but it may not be in the forefront of people's minds as, say, the top problem in the country. But when a candidate or a leader highlights these issues because they see them as potential wedge issues, they can make it a major part of the agenda. They can bring it to the forefront of people's attention. And polarizing leaders know that dividing people and driving up especially anger is a really good way to win elections. When a politician is talking about a threat or an enemy or someone who has treated you unfairly or someone who is changing our cultural values, our way of life, then it's really easy for people to feel anxious and angry. And they can accept the idea that we're in an exceptional situation, a state of exception. And so we have to change the rules. And that's what allows people to say, okay, we can sacrifice this part of our democracy in favor of security or in favor of someone who is going to protect our way of life, who who can give us the benefits that, that we deserve. So we have seen over and over around the world that the tensest moments in a democracy can occur when a leader is using this polarizing rhetoric to erode democracy and entrench their own power. So yes, words matter.
0: You've uh, also observed that polarization that forms around long-standing debates that date back to a country's founding can be particularly problematic. Why is that?
1: Yeah, this is a concept that we've called formative rifts. And what happens is when countries form or perhaps when they're coming out of a civil war or a major change such as from communism, then there are often debates over who is a rightful citizen And who gets to represent those people and who will be represented in the government? So in the founding of the U.S., there were obviously groups who were not considered full citizens. African-Americans, that is, slaves, were not represented. Women weren't given full citizenship, weren't given the vote. And Native Americans. So in some countries, it might be something different. It might be if they had a war of national liberation, for example, in African countries or in Bangladesh, it can be the revolutionary leaders who say they're the only legitimate leaders. And anyone else who didn't participate in that really cannot represent the country. Or it can be a religious secular divide. Um, what's the role of religion um, in the state? So for example, in Turkey, we've seen this kind of, of formative rift. That So these are unresolved debates. Now at different times in our history, these issues can come to the fore and they can recede. Obviously, we had the Civil War where slavery was coming to the fore and then it receded. It came back with the Civil Rights Act in the 1960s, and it recedes. Right now, we're living in a moment where race and racial representation is at the fore again. And what we have found is that this polarization will always fester unless the country has a reckoning to acknowledge it and resolve it. It may get masked over for a while, but it will be there. And that is when when the debate, when the country's conversation then polarizes around that, when it comes back to the fore, it becomes the most entrenched and enduring kind of polarization. So I can give you two examples. One is looking at Germany after World War II that country went through a real reckoning about what they had done under the Nazi party and with the Holocaust. They acknowledged what had occurred, they made changes, they enacted policies to prevent it from happening again, they limited the military's power. It doesn't mean that it's completely resolved or erased, but they've made significant progress in addressing it. Now, in contrast, Chile, uh, after they got rid of the Pinochet dictatorship, in 1989, 1990, and they started having elections again, uh, the new uh, governments that came in and the political coalitions did not challenge the social and and uh, economic tensions that had led to the dictatorship in the first place. Instead, the leaders in the restored democracy actually papered over those divisions with a sort of contrived consensus around the unregulated market economics that had been put in place by the Pinochet dictatorship. So polarization around those issues kept building. And 25 years after that return to democracy, young Chileans began pouring into the streets to protest the inequalities that came out of that unregulated unregulated. Uh, markets and the privatization of, for example, higher education and health and social security. And they've had large, large protests over the last year. And in fact, now they're going to have a constitutional assembly to rewrite that constitution that came out of the Pinochet dictatorship, but 30 years later. So in the U.S., of course, we've made advances. We've passed the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act in the 1960s. What we haven't had perhaps until now is a massive shift in public opinion and acknowledgement about the legacy of hundreds of years of systemic discrimination against blacks and other minorities. And the protest happening now actually opened the opportunity for such a reckoning in a positive way, but it doesn't guarantee anything.
0: So that kind of leads us to what I consider to be the million-dollar question, which is, is it possible for the U.S. to reverse our current entrenched polarization? And if so, what would it take?
1: It is possible to reverse it, but it's going to be really hard and it's going to take a long time. This has been building up for decades, so it's not going to disappear overnight or with a single election. And besides that, other things that we haven't mentioned yet come into play, Uh, new developments in information technology, social media, the 24-hour news cycle, these have all made it more difficult to resolve because people stay in their virtual communication and information bubbles, even receiving different information. And that just contributes to the whole problem. But we... Another uh, one way to overcome it actually is with an external threat or a crisis, and we often think that that can be the catalyst for change, for bringing a country back together. So, for example, after 9/11, the country did come together temporarily, um, to to address terrorism, but it didn't resolve the long-term issues. And so, we could see ask now today, we're in the midst of another huge external crisis with the. COVID-19 pandemic, uh, which had the opportunity to bring us together because we're all vulnerable. This is an invisible virus that's threatening everyone. But it hasn't brought us together, unfortunately, in large part because the president has decided to make it a polarizing political issue instead of an issue that breaks down our barriers. So the question is, what else could work? I'm doing research right now on what kinds of opposition strategies might work if you have a government that is thriving on polarization and the demonization of its opponents in order to stay in power. Now the temptation for an opposition party is to reciprocate, and we see this happening around the world. But reciprocating can just bring a country into a downward spiral and kind of lock everyone into that dynamic. One example in the United States of that happening was this kind of tit for tat that we saw over the nomination and uh, uh, approval of judges and Supreme Court justices in the United States Senate. And it actually started with the Democrats moving to get rid of the filibuster and just have a majority vote on federal judges back in 2013 when they couldn't get them approved and then it escalated to the point of removing the filibuster and just allowing a majority vote on Supreme Court justices um, with the approval in the Trump administration of two Supreme Court justices just based on a strict party line vote. So you could see that that kind of tit for tat going back and forth between the two parties it actually hurts both of them because now when they're not in the majority, they will have no say over the appointment of judges. So what else? What should parties do instead of that kind of tit-for-tat reciprocation? Well, we've seen in a few cases abroad that uh, trying to shift the polarizing debate to a new debate can be effective. So if you shift the debate away from the leadership or the personality that you are trying to defeat. So instead of asking, for example, are you pro-Trump or anti-Trump and making that the focal point of your campaign, then if you move towards something else like a social justice program, like in Chile on equity um, or in Venezuela, when they started moving finally from just focusing against Chavez, Hugo Chavez, as the the. the Dictator to get rid of and instead focused on what are they going to offer um, instead that can be an alternative. You still might have strong differences of opinion, but it's around the democratic rules of the country or a social justice issue. The other strategy. So that's kind of repolarizing around, but a positive uh, issue. The other strategy is what I would call active depolarization. And that's where the opposition is trying to reach out with a more unifying message to bring in some of the people who had been supporting uh, the polarizing leader. So in Turkey and Hungary as two examples just this past year where the opposition had been really out in the cold, had won no major elections for the last decade. They actually won the mayorships of the capital cities this past year with candidates who used a unifying message of hope and love. They actually talked about love and bringing people together. So instead of demonizing the opponents, they emphasized the positive and they won. Now, I would note that a strategy focusing on positive emotions like that can be really difficult because it's harder to build up those emotions in a way that get people to act and especially go out and vote, which is what you want. Is much easier to stoke anger and get people out in that way. But we do have these examples where that could win. I'm curious, what are you watching for in the
0: 2020 election, which is coming up very soon, as it relates to these issues of polarization and democracy?
1: Yeah, well, for one, I am watching what is gonna happen with this racial justice movement um, the cycle of protest and the efforts to actually have reform. Does it fade away or does it continue to remain at the fore? Will it continue to be a campaign issue as the elections come up? Will there be, uh, new candidates elected on, on the basis of this? Will there be policy change? And does public opinion coalesce around this kind of change? That could really be, um, the beginning of a of a, uh, addressing one of those formative rifts that I talked about having to do with racial inequities and the role of citizenship going back to the the nation's founding. There's also of course our two other big things right now the virus and the economy which are interrelated and so you know in terms of overcoming the polarization that we're seeing around the virus and is it a threat or not I mean we've seen The public, the American public, divide along partisan lines so that Democrats view it as more of a threat than Republicans. Democrats are more um, interested in following the uh, recommendations of the CDC and wearing masks and social distancing. Um, Republicans are more interested in focusing on the freedom to choose what they're going to do. Um, So we are polarized even around that. And I fear that we'll be polarized around vaccines when those come up. So I'll be watching that. What is our, what is the partisanship uh, around that debate? Everything having to do with the virus. Now I do think it's encouraging that within the Republican Party, local and state leaders seem to be more willing to dissent and uh, actually going against the president's rhetoric and uh, and putting together bipartisan responses. And just this week, we've seen as a result of that. Um, of that kind of pressure, actually President Trump coming out for the first time uh, showing himself wearing a mask and saying it's actually patriotic to wear a mask. So perhaps that will begin to unify us and depolarize the virus as an issue. Um, But I'm also watching for the use of voter suppression tactics. President Trump won office without winning the popular vote because of our particular electoral rules, the Electoral College. And since his election, um, his his uh, focus seems to be on deepening his base, making sure his base turns out, but not trying to broaden it, not trying to broaden his appeal. So without a broader coalition um, to win, then an alternative to have a strong chance to win for any political leader is to stop members of the other side from voting. So you you either win by getting a majority yourself or you win by decreasing the turnout of the other side. There are a number of tactics to do this. Uh, Obviously, the other side could have a poor candidate. That could be, you know, the choice of the other side. But what we've seen as well in the United States, as well as other countries, is the use of voter ID laws to make it harder to vote, um, making it difficult now in the coronavirus period to use absentee or mail-in ballots and so discouraging some people from going to the polls or purging the voter rolls. So the question is how often and to what extent these kinds of tactics are used uh, to dissuade people from voting from one side and for the other side to try to win. So I'll also be watching for that as we come up to the election of 2020.
0: Well, This is certainly a lot to think about as we head towards the November election. Um, And so I really wanna thank you so much for joining us, Dr. McCoy, it's been really great to have you here with us today. Thank you so much, I've
1: enjoyed it myself.
0: This has been the research podcast from Georgia State University featuring Jennifer McCoy, professor of political science and an expert on polarized societies around the globe. For more conversations about research taking place across Georgia State, look for the research podcast wherever podcasts are found. Thank you for listening and be sure to subscribe so you don't miss future episodes.